to have this uh, opportunity to assemble together on this first day of the week to worship God, uh, to commune with our Savior, and now to study uh, God's Word together for a little while as we continue a series on the book of Philippians, specifically on the subject of joy, which I believe is maybe often undervalued, underappreciated, neglected, forgotten about, maybe not emphasized uh, as much as it should be in, in regards to essential, necessary qualities and characteristics of Christianity, of being a Christian. We're commanded to have joy. Joy is not optional. Uh, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Paul said the kingdom consists of righteousness, peace, and joy. We're commanded throughout Scripture to have joy, including throughout the book of Philippians, a book on joy. And one verse in particular, we're commanded to have joy twice in one verse for emphasis, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And so hopefully you'll find this series relevant, timely, concerning events going on in the world and in our lives. And last time in part one, we talked about chapter two, in depth, we dissected what I believe is one of the most powerful, beautiful, convicting, challenging passages in the entire Bible, and we talked about how we can find joy in humble service. And this morning, we want to spend our time in chapter three as we talk about how we can find joy in our past, our present, and our future. And so as we begin by talking about finding joy in our past, I think we all know and experience the fact that the past can rob us of much joy. Whether that's longing for a return for better days, uh, living in the past, maybe like Uncle Rico in our letter jacket, making football videos in the front yard, that can rob us of joy in the present. Uh, maybe it's crippling guilt that robs us of joy in the present and also robs us of hope for the future. And so as we talk about and emphasize the importance of leaving the past behind, if we're going to find joy in the past, we also need to appreciate and understand the fact that some remembering of the past is beneficial and in fact commanded. Ephesians 2 is a great example of that, the whole chapter, but look specifically at verses 11 through 13, wherefore, or therefore, which means look at the previous verses, because you're saved by grace through faith, and are now God's workmanship in Christ, because of that, wherefore, remember that in time past. Remember at that time you were without Christ, aliens and strangers from the covenant, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. And so part of the appreciating and gratitude and thanksgiving and glorying in Christ and what Christ has done for us is predicated upon some remembrance of the misery of the past. And so remembering can be beneficial. I think of Luke 7, uh, Jesus teaching the lesson to Simon, the sinner washing his feet, and Jesus essentially taught the lesson, whoever understands they were forgiven most, loveth most. And so a remembering of our past that humbles us, that reminds us constantly that we were the one forgiven most, will motivate a greater level of, God, of love for God and for our fellow man. And so there's a good remembering. There's also a bad remembering. Luke 9, 62, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
memory, remembrances, reminiscing that takes us back down a path of disobedience, of not following Jesus, bad remembrance. Quit looking at who you were and what you did and what you used to value. Forget anything and everything that hinders you from the surpassing worth of knowing and experiencing Christ in the present, which is far better, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. And so finding joy in the past is contingent upon finding justification, finding righteousness, not in our own righteousness, but through His righteousness. It's difficult, if not impossible, to have joy in a life that's riddled with guilt. And the psalmist in Psalm 32 talks about the blessedness of having your past and your sin forgiven. Blessed or happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. And so when we have our past made right, forgiven by God, it transforms and changes not only the past, but also our present and our future outlook. And so experiencing the joy of being forgiven motivates and allows us to pursue the joy of forgiving. Philippians chapter 3, I think, you know, you see the term blameless throughout the Bible and in the book of Philippians. And I think if we're honest and humble, knowing who we are, what we've done, I think we see words like blameless and think, I don't feel blameless. And that's robbing me of joy for my present and for my future. That doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. Doesn't mean a righteousness that's my own. That's a lot of the context in Philippians chapter 3. As Paul talks about his pedigree in the the first verses in that chapter, the previous verses, and he says, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing or experiencing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. It's not good news. It's not gospel if it's a righteousness of my own because there's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3, one of my favorite verses in Romans, Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And that should bring joy into our life. If you're struggling with joy because of an uncertainty concerning your future and your salvation. I would encourage you to study the book of 1 John, which is really one of the the thesis of that that entire book. Uh, I gave a sermon several years ago about blessed assurance. I really should have called it a study of 1 John. I think half or more of the verses were from the book of 1 John. 1 John 1 verse 4 tells us why he wrote the book. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Final chapter Chapter 5, verse 13, These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not just wishing or crossing our fingers, you can know with certainty that you are on your way to heaven. And that should bring joy in your life. So we know whether it's a medical procedure, when there's uncertainty 
and you're waiting for the results and you don't know what's going to happen to you, there's, it's hard to have joy and uncertainty and doubt. And so the question becomes, do we base our confidence and hope of salvation, of future glory, in subjective emotions and feelings and whether we're an optimistic or pessimistic person, our salvation's not predicated on that, on subjective religious experiences, or do we base it on the objective truth and promise of God? Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Throughout the book of 1 John, he says, not only can you know that you have salvation, here's how you can know it. Through the truth, the objective truth, through this criteria, do you have fellowship with God through Christ? That's how you know you have salvation. How do you know you have fellowship with God through Christ? Do you love the truth? Do you love God? Do you love other people? Previous verses leading up to this, hereby we know that we are the truth, talks about seeing someone in need and taking care of that need, loving God, loving other people. And through that criteria throughout 1 John, you can know that you're in fellowship with God and therefore know that you have salvation. So we can either doubt our God or we can doubt our doubts. And this is the promise that he hath promised us even eternal life. You think about the definition of grace, saved by grace through faith. Grace is that which gives joy, pleasure, or delight. And you wouldn't need grace in your life. We wouldn't need grace for salvation if we were perfect. God will never, ever quit loving you. And that is essential to getting up and trying again. Justification, just as if I've never sinned. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my past. He doesn't see a sinner anymore. He sees Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all will bring back joy into your life. And so the source and confidence of our joy, Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, he warns us, look out or beware of the dogs, a very derogatory term at that time. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Verse 3 tells us, talk about circumcision, those going back to the old law, who don't glory in Jesus, who are putting their confidence in the flesh. He said, don't put your confidence and trust in your pedigree. Paul said, if anybody could do that, it was me, born in the right time, the right place, the right tribe, with a zeal and a sincerity. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You are mutilating yourself and you are mutilating your joy if you put your confidence and trust and hope in self or any other person for that matter instead of God and Christ. And so the key to finding joy in our past is that we find righteousness through His righteousness, that we are found in Him, that we glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. That's how you find joy concerning your past. I want to transition now, though, and talk about finding joy in the present, in our sanctification. God does His part perfectly so that we can have joy in the past, but I want to spend the most time talking about living in the present. God does his part perfectly. We have to respond to that. We have to accept that because often we expect that we're entitled to a happy work, a happy home, a happy marriage, a happy life without any work or effort or initiative or personal responsibility on our part. But what we see throughout Scripture is this connection between holiness and happiness. And I want to share a passage with you that I've been chewing on for years waiting for a time to incorporate into a study on how to be happy. I think this, this really was eye-opening to me, really helped me find uh, the ultimate cause 
or a foundation for being happy in life. In Deuteronomy 28, as Moses, Deuteronomy 2, repeating the law, calling them to a renewal of covenant faithfulness to God, he puts before them blessings, happiness, or cursing and misery. And notice what he says in Deuteronomy 28, if, conditional, God's done his part perfectly, I have to respond to that. Conditional, if you diligently obey, if you carefully observe, God will set you high above all nations. And notice verse two, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Let happiness pursue you. We talk often about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we talked a little bit about this last time. Often that becomes a pursuit of selfish pleasure, which is a mirage of happiness. And that's why many people don't find it. We talked about statistics of Americans who most admit they are not happy in life because happiness, real lasting joy, is not found by direct selfish pursuit. It's found indirectly by pursuing God and other people. And when we do that, we don't have to pursue happiness. Happiness will overtake us. He goes on later to talk about if you don't obey, cursing will pursue you. Cursing will overtake you. Misery will find you. Same concept I think Jesus taught in Matthew 6. I think he teaches it in Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. The basis of the blessedness of the characteristics of a happy life is replacing worldly standards with the standards of heaven. God as produces true, genuine, lasting joy knows better than anyone how we can have that, how we can find that. And so every act of obedience is in a sense a path to blessing and happiness. Moses says, you obey God, you'll be blessed. Disobey God, you'll be cursed. And he pronounces four times as many cursings as he does blessings throughout Deuteronomy 28. Covenant faithfulness is the key to happiness. Yet we pursue joy in all the wrong places. We pursue it in affairs. We pursue it in money, in work, in jobs, in entertainment, thinking that the key to happiness is pleasure. And what we learned the hard way is that temporary moments of pleasure are replaced with long-term shame, disease, incarceration, etc. You run from holiness, misery and cursing pursues you. The prodigal son learned that the hard way. And who rejoices? Not God and the angels in heaven, Satan rejoices. And Satan rejoices when we pursue holiness, but we're not happy about it. We're miserable about it because he knows he has our heart. And so if we will share and adopt the sentiment of the psalmist who said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed or happy is the man that trusts in him. God is my exceeding joy. When that is true in your heart and in your life, it'll radically change your pursuit of holiness. Yes, you will still deny self, you will submit, you will obey, but you will not believe for a fleeting moment that you are exchanging happiness for holiness in the process. Rather, you are trading dung and rubbish for a pearl of great price because you now clearly see the surpassing worth of knowing and experiencing Christ, which is far better. And so Paul says in Philippians 1, And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. And that reminds us of 
what Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. You can bear no fruit. You can't have a productive, fruitful, successful, happy life without me. And so he says, if, conditional, if you keep my commandments, these things have I spoken unto you, the connection again with holiness and happiness through the word of God. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. And his beautiful prayer before his crucifixion and now come out of thee and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in them. If we will abide, obey, bear fruit in the kingdom, Jesus promises us not just joy in life, he promises us his joy. And I find that absolutely amazing. We will learn to enjoy the things he enjoys in the presence of God. Jesus knew that true joy comes from keeping God's commandments, those avenues of blessing. The psalmist said the same thing. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Psalm 112, verse 1, Praise the Lord, blessed or happy is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. I think about what God told Cain in Genesis 4 when he said, Why is your countenance fallen? If you do right, will not your countenance be lifted up? I think we have a tendency sometimes to focus so much on our feelings how we feel in our emotions at the expense of analyzing our behavior. I think we need to analyze both and address both. Sometimes, as God told Cain, the behavior preceded the feeling. (laughs) And sometimes, maybe it's as simple as you do right, maybe you'll feel better. Do right, maybe you'll feel right. Repentance restores joy. Going back to Psalm 32, David speaks of the physical and emotional toll of sin in his life. Bones grew old, groaning all the day long. Day and night, your hand was upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Sin corrupts every aspect of your being, body, soul, spirit, mind, depression, and is the ultimate thief of joy. And so then David speaks of the relief or joy that's found when we confess and we don't hide our sin. The relief and joy that comes from quit having to tell lies, (laughs) more importantly, Quit having to live lies and quit having to be afraid of being caught in lies. Going back to Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Belly gods rob joy in The destruction was the result of elevating their desires, their appetites as their source of authority in life. And now they encounter Christians, chapter 1, selflessly united, living a life worthy of the gospel. Christians who are willing to sacrifice their belly, sacrifice their very life, which is proof of the Christian salvation and their condemnation, and proof that their little g isn't the big G. Proof that Jesus is real, that sin can be forgiven, that God is sovereign, that glory is coming, that God offers the greater high in Christ, the surpassing worth and experience of Jesus Christ. More than any worldly addiction or drug, worldly addictions numb sin, but Jesus offers to forgive 
sin. Physical solutions are temporary and they wear off and you're hungry again. The hunger returns, the guilt returns. And we feel guilty when we try to respond to our sin and our guilt by sinning more. And we think that's ridiculous and yet we've all done it. Feel guilty about doing drugs or putting things in our body that maybe I shouldn't. What do we do? We, we do more drugs. Feel guilty about having an affair. And what do people do? They have more affairs. Feel guilty about looking at pornography. And what do we do? We look at more pornography. You know how you overcome the addictions that enslave? Jesus liberates. Addictions that provide moments of pleasure. Jesus offers eternal pleasure and relief, past, present, and future. You know how you overcome every addiction? Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life and I am the living water. When you come to Jesus and find him to be more satisfying than everything else, you'll be addicted to Christ and nothing else. In Ecclesiastes, as Solomon talks about the ultimate purpose and meaning in life, in chapter 2, he talks about this pursuit of happiness and trying to find happiness in the world. And he said, I got me this and I got me this. And I had worldly pursuits and possessions and money and I built things and I made things and I sought it in entertainment and everything I could, my heart desired, wisdom and education, eating and drinking. And the conclusion was vanity of vanities, vexation of spirit. I am miserable and unhappy and depressed because the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's the bottom line. That's the conclusion. You have to learn to enjoy life apart from your stomach, apart from the physical, Think about Maslow's hierarchy of what motivates people. Probably learned this in school. We've got to quit living at the bottom. We've got to learn to live at the top. What motivates people? The basic things, the baser things are what motivates people the most usually. We've got to learn to be self-actualized. And thinking about that from a biblical, godly perspective instead of a Maslow humanistic perspective, self-actualization is being motivated by growth and being better. And we would say that is becoming who God created us to be, the plan that God has for us in our life. When you learn to live at the top, when you learn to find joy in the surpassing worth of knowing and experiencing Christ, then when these things come and go, when you find yourself in prison, like Paul as he writes to the Philippians, when you, chapter four, learn to be in want, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. When you learn to live at the top, it doesn't matter when you have or don't have the things at the bottom because your joy is not predicated upon these things. We've got to learn to live at the top and quit living at the bottom because if we don't, we won't develop. We won't mature. And we will be immature emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. And that's why we live maybe in a very entertainment-centric society where we think that we have to be entertained all the time and why we want to have Walt Disney World worship. Pagan worship, same focus. We're going to do drugs, and commit fornication to stimulate the physical flesh and call that being close to God, and we make that worship. There's a big temptation to do that, not only in worship, but in our life, in our conversation. And as we raise our children, where we spend all our time eating, drinking, playing, things that aren't necessarily wrong, with moderation and balance, but we teach them that life is all about living here and we never teach them to live here. You know what happens? They're never developed. They're never mature. We end up in the basement into our 40s playing games 15 hours a day, eating yet another bag of Doritos. All of life is not Disneyland. And that's why 
because we've learned to live right here all the time while we have children who can't sit still for an hour anywhere to focus on important, higher, aim higher things without an iPad or eating or whatever it is. I think part of our challenge in job as parents or with the next generation is to teach them where to find joy and happiness, to teach them how to be happy. Now, don't misunderstand, uh, don't misunderstand me. We're not talking about the false misconceptions about giving your child everything that you, they want. That's the direct pursuit of selfish pleasure, which will make them very unhappy in life. That's living at the bottom. I'm talking about teaching them where to find the source of real lasting joy, how to live at the top and find joy in the Lord. That's our challenge and job as parents. For example, do our, do our kids, do they want to date physiologically? Do they want to date and have relationships that are focused on the physical? Or do they want mature relationships that are based on an emotional, spiritual, intellectual connection? Romans 8, Matthew 6, there is so much more to life than the physical. I think about Esau in Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's what happens. When you elevate second things above first things, when you elevate moments and meals above your birthright, not only do you lose your birthright, not only do you lose the value of first things, you lose the value of second things in your life because it's putting first things first that give value and meaning to second and third and fourth things. Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Reminds me of an illustration my dad has used in sermons that stuck with me, the walnut and rice illustration. You take a jar and you want to fill it with both. The walnuts are the big things, the rice the little things. If you start with the little things, there's no room for the big things. But if you'll start with the big things, if you'll put the walnuts in first, everything else can fall into place. That's how we find joy in our present. So finally, joy in our future and glorification. Paul is so anchored in the Christ who forgave his past, strengtheneth his present, and is giving him joy for the future. He can't help but have joy and be happy. In Philippians 3, he continues in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As he commonly did in an athlete, runner, illustration, winners, runners have drive. Even Paul said, I haven't arrived. I haven't made it. I'm not content and satisfied. I keep pressing. I keep growing. I keep self-actualizing. There's a tendency, you know, to look around when we run, and when you look around, you slow down. Runners and winners have direction. They have concentration. This one thing I do, that's a phrase you'll see throughout the Bible, one thing. Talking about, again, our priorities. Jesus, Mary, and Martha, she has chosen the good part, the one thing. There's a tendency for us to spread ourselves so thin, living at the bottom with all the noise that we never get good at the one thing. We never reach the top. Direction. We talked about putting the past behind us. What happens when you try to run looking behind you? It doesn't turn out good, does it? When I was younger, uh, a friend of mine and I were riding bikes to a swimming pool, and there were hills in Oklahoma, where I'm from, and 
going pretty fast. He beat me. He obviously was going faster than me, and he turned around to gloat, and he shook his hand at me and ran around in the back of a parked car on the side of the street, and I got the last laugh. That's what happens. You can't run in a straight line. That's what Paul's talking. That's what Jesus said. You can't run in a straight line if you're looking behind you. And winners and runners have dedication. I press. I pursue. Interesting thing about that word is it's the same word as persecute. Paul wasted and persecuted the church, pursued. Same Greek word. His passion changed. His all-in exertion, his purpose in life, the plan God had for him changed. Going back to Ecclesiastes, the purpose and meaning of life and God's plan for you. There's the day that you were born and there was the day that you were born again and learned what you were born for. I think about this illustration of running in a race, so many examples of that. There's one in particular, a man by the name of Cliff Young, a 61-year-old farmer, entered a marathon in Australia in the 1980s. Some of you might remember that. And he showed up on the day of the race with holes in his pants for ventilation, no teeth because he said his false teeth rattled when he ran. He had never owned a pair of tennis shoes. He had, tra- he had run chasing animals around the farm in boots and galoshes. People thought it was a big joke. They just laughed at him. Race started. He's way behind. He, he has this awkward shuffle of a run. I'm not going to try to illustrate that for you, but he's way behind. But what happened is people would stop at night to sleep for four to six hours, and maybe he would sleep for one or two hours. And eventually he got ahead, and somebody described it. It was like he was a scared rabbit once he got ahead. He just wouldn't stop. He kept pressing, kept pushing when everybody else was sleeping. That's what winners do. Winners have drive, they have direction, and they have dedication. Whenever we're tempted to slow down, look around, rest, sleep, stop, quit, we press onward and upward. Continuing in verse 15, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. He says in verse 12, I'm not perfect. And then in verse 15, I am perfect. Translated in that sense, mature. Not sinlessly perfect, but I am maturing in my way of thinking. Have this mindset, the mindset we've talked about throughout chapter 3 and the way that I look at things. Going back to chapter 2, put on the mind of Christ. And so mature people think in a mature way. Mature thinking is not worldly, it's not arrogant, it's not selfish, and it's not short-sighted. Learn to think maturely. Our citizenship is in heaven. Don't set your mind on earthly things we talked about. God is their belly, their end is destruction, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Citizens walk with partners. You run better when you have accountability and you have a challenge. Citizens watch for pretenders. Citizens wait for a place in heaven in contrast to those who set their mind on earthly things. Don't be like the soldiers just came near to Jesus, just was proximate to the cross because they were going to mock and laugh and throw dice and play games. Life is too short and eternity is too long for that. And our citizenship, our focus is in heaven because our citizenship, our political affiliation is in heaven. The Greek word there for citizenship is where we get the word politics. And I'd planned on spending more time on this, maybe a whole session on this, Jeffrey and Jason did such a great job covering that. I'm just going to say amen instead of echoing that. What I want to say, kind of echoing what Jason said from his own experience, what I've discovered for me personally, as I've tried to mature in my thinking, which is I've got a long way to go, 
What I've discovered personally as I mature in my way of thinking, I'm a lot less political and a lot more spiritual in my outlook. I'm a theocrat. God, Christ, the eternal kingdom is our only hope. And if we would convert people to that platform, that's our mission. We'd turn the world upside down and we would solve all the problems in the world. So we talk about getting the Ten Commandments back in the courthouse and getting prayer back in school. I'm not saying I don't want to see that. I'm not saying don't vote, don't influence. I've talked, seek the welfare of this city. Last time I talked, Jeremiah, trust me, don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is maybe we need to start and put a little more effort or exertion instead of getting spun up on all these other things. Maybe we need to focus first on getting prayer back in the home. Maybe we need to focus more on the Constitution of Heaven <laughs> instead of the Constitution of the United States of America. Constitution of Heaven is defined in Philippians chapter 1, I believe. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our Constitution. That's our charter. Live your life in a way that befits, that suits what Christ has done for you. Matthew 10, Jesus said, if you don't love me more than everything else, in the world, including relationships, you are not worthy of me. And so that implies that he defines being worthy of him as valuing him, surpassing worth of knowing Christ better than everything else. Bring light, your life into conformity to that by showing by your life that the gospel, that the kingdom of heaven is worth more to you than everything else. Are you eagerly waiting for the Savior because heaven's not just a destination, it's a motivation. Jesus says, look to the reward. Be motivated by that. Live at the top. Think about a young boy who was burned in a fire and they didn't think he was going to make it. And his teacher from school began to visit him and do homework with him. And he had a miraculous recovery. And he said, well, I didn't think they'd send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy. And it brought him back to life. That's what the hope for the future can do for us in the present. It energizes us. Another story of a man who was asked to talk to 59 sixth graders in Harlem. Didn't know what he was going to say to them, but he finally just said, you know, if you'll graduate high school, I'll pay for your college. 90% graduated high school. One of the students said, I had something to look forward to waiting for me. That's exactly what we're talking about. It was a golden feeling. So much of the despondent, dysfunctional, depressed, self-destructive behavior in life that robs us of joy is hopelessness. When you don't have faith and hope for your future, you won't have power for your present. And so in summarizing what we talked about last time and this time, rejoice in the good news that Christ became human, that Christ obeyed perfectly, died and rose again, so that by uniting with him, we will be counted righteous through his righteousness and be saved from sin and destruction, belonging to Christ forever in the resurrection of the dead. We are on our way to heaven. And there are so many things that seek to disturb our peace and rob us of joy and undermine our peace and joy in life. But when we consider and know with certainty, without a doubt, that we're going to heaven, how can we not rejoice? How can we keep from singing? When we consider the quality of life surrounding the throne of God, what heaven will be like, I can only imagine eternity with God the Father and the Son. Matthew 5, 12, going back to the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why? Because for great is your reward 
in heaven. Luke's account of this, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Don't rejoice in this, the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so are we surprised in that climatic moment when we appear before the throne of God and he welcomes us into his presence for eternity? What's he going to say? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou in to the joy of the Lord. If you want that eternal joy in your life, if you want joy in your past, your present, your future, justification and sanctification through the blood and righteousness and work of Jesus Christ, obey the gospel, respond. And what he did, be resurrected to walk in newness of life, become a Christian, maybe as a Christian, confess your sin, 1 John 1. That's why you need grace. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a comprehensive word, all Cleanse, present tense, not he turns the faucet on and off, he leaves the blood running. If you'll confess your sin, and we can have an earnest expectation and hope of glorification in our future. God and Christ have done their part perfectly. If you need to respond to that so you can go on your way rejoicing like those in the book of Acts. If you want to leap for joy this morning because you found joy for your past, your present, and your future. God in Christ invites you to come. Please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.